As most of you will know, I just returned recently from my vacation. I went to see my parents back in Vancouver, which is where I'm from. And so I spent the last two weeks with them. Uh, partly I went there because it was their 50th anniversary. We went for a party and I went with the expectation of relaxing and having a good time. But I think many of you can relate to this, that when you go home to visit your parents to relax and have a good time, it seems like certain things that you have to do get sprung on you as soon as you get off the plane. This particular thing that happened was that I got there and my mom and dad welcomed me and said how wonderful it is that I'm here and I hope you have a good time and oh by the way, we bought a little playhouse for the kids but we didn't have the chance to put it together. Uh, could, you, could you maybe spend this morning and put the thing together? So of course, sure, I'll do that. Well, morning stretches into afternoon and I'm not even a quarter of the way through and even worse, as the early afternoon starts, I find that I followed these complicated instructions uh, and was realizing that when I was building it, I must not have measured quite properly because the frame wasn't square. So even worse than me having to spend the time making this thing, I had to spend the time taking some of it down that I made to straighten it because otherwise everything else wouldn't fit together. And so I found myself uh, taking a project that they said would take one morning and eventually took three days. So. <laughs> However, I am awfully proud of it, and maybe I'll put it up on my Facebook or my Twitter feed uh, just so I can brag a bit. Now, I tell you about this failure with the frame, uh, not because I, I want you to revoke my man card and say this guy can't really build things well. I mention that frame in the crooked frame because it actually pertains today to St. Paul's letter to the Ephesians, which is our first reading. Uh, we read, uh, Sandy read for us just a few minutes ago from Ephesians chapter 2, starting at verse 11. <laughs> And Christ uh, is referred to here as the cornerstone uh, and the apostles as the foundation of the church. St. Paul's writing to the Ephesians, he's writing largely to Gentiles, to people who had no real history with Israel, and explaining to them not simply about the reconciliation that happens between God and individuals. He talks about the reconciliation between God and groups and speaks between the reconciliation between groups and groups. This is a passage that speaks to us about how the church is founded on Christ's reconciling work and also speaks to us about how the church is supposed to model that same reconciliation so that the world might see how God really works by looking at the church. I'd like to spend time today looking at those two points about how Christ's reconciling work is what is the established foundation of the church and how it is through us following the teaching of the apostles, we as the church can model that reconciliation for the world. Now, I mentioned just briefly as I began that this is a letter that's written largely to Gentiles. And when you think about Ephesus, or Ephesus is a city in what's now known as Turkey. And so Paul is writing to people who in that church are largely Gentiles. Gentiles are people who are not Jewish people. And so one of the, the key considerations that exists, the dividing line between Jews and Gentiles, is that Jews, even to this day, circumcise their little boys traditionally on the eighth day after their birth, whereas Gentiles don't. So that's why Paul talks about the circumcised and the uncircumcised as a physical marker. But what's interesting about this passage is, is that for many of us, although we're aware of modern anti-Semitism, and so we can get a hint of how many divides there have been between Jews and non-Jews, if we look, in fact, at how the church came about, we often forget about what a remarkable thing it is that those who are uncircumcised, those who are Gentiles, were actually part of the church at all. Listen to what St. Paul says as he begins reading or speaking to these Ephesian people in verse 11. He reminds them that these are people he is speaking to, the people he's speaking to are non-Jews, 
And this is a remarkable fact. He says, remember that at one time you were Gentiles by birth, called the uncircumcision by those who were called the circumcision, a physical circumcision made in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you are, were at that time without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Remember that Jesus himself was a Jew. Jesus' disciples were Jews. All of the first followers of Jesus were Jews. And how Paul himself is a Jew, and yet he's speaking to people who were Gentiles saying that you are now part of the church, but don't forget what you used to be. If you think from a Jewish perspective, as you look at the Gentile world, I want you to imagine what it must have looked like to them as we see God speaking to the Gentile people and how surprising it would have been. If you're a Jewish person, looking at the Gentile world, here's some of the things you would have seen that would have made you think that maybe God would not really be interested in having Gentiles in his church or allowing his Messiah to welcome them in. Gentiles, for example, were idolaters. Almost universally outside of Israel, what you would find was people who made idols out of stone and out of wood, something that violated clearly the commandments God gave to Israel. God spoke through Moses telling Israel that idolatry, worshiping a creature, was blasphemous. And here it is, every time a Jewish person would go into a non-Jewish area, even if you went into the home of a Gentile person, you'd find statues, you'd find uh, ways in which people incorporated idolatry into their everyday life. A Jewish person would look at this and be scandalized, not just for cultural reasons, but because it is scandalous that we worship a creation rather than our Creator. Do you know, one of the things, too, that we notice in the Gentile world is that uh, the, the, the typical practices in the Gentile world, although, of course, there were many good and righteous Gentiles, the reality was is that the daily life they lived in things such as sexuality were things would have scandalized any Jewish people. In fact, we as modern people looking at how pagan sexuality was lived out can be easily scandalized as well. You know, one of the things that I used to really enjoy as a child was that I was introduced sort of in, in young adulthood, maybe in my mid-teens, to uh, the literature of ancient Greece. I particularly loved reading the Odyssey. Uh, I remember getting that for Christmas and thinking what a fantastic story it is of how Odysseus leaves the Trojan War and makes his way back home. But I remember very distinctly reading something called the Anabasis, which is written by uh, a man named Xenophon. Uh, hundreds of years before Christ. It was a rip-roaring story about how a Greek army had gone uh, to work for the Persian uh, king or the Persian Empire uh, and, uh, or somebody in the midst of a civil war. And so when they lost the battle, the Greeks uh, needed to get back home. They made a deal with the Persians and the Persians betrayed them. And so what did they do? They had to fight their way all the way back to Greece. A fantastic story, the kind of thing teenage boys love. But one of the things I remember reading and was shocked by is, is they would go through villages and they'd notice the pretty young boys there in the village and all take them as lovers. How shocking it is you read ancient Greek literature and realize that pederasty was not just a thing that we look at that and sort of say, what an aberration and terrible. It was absolutely mainstream. Even when you read more uh, uh, knowledgeable people like Plato is to realize how attractive they found prepubescent boys and you ask yourself, that's shocking. Shocking to us, it was shocking to Jewish people. And you look at this and, and how easy it was and must have been for them to say, these aren't just people who are led astray. I'm going to lump them all together and just say they're just the uncircumcised. The people who are clueless. The people who just don't get it. And the people who disgust me. St. Paul writes to these Ephesians and says, you are Gentiles and you can easily see why Jewish people would think, you've got no business being in the church whatsoever. 
So ask yourself an important question. Why are you here? Why are you here? Well, here's the answer, says St. Paul. It says, now in Christ, Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace. In his flesh he has made both groups into one, that is Jew and Gentile, and has broken down the dividing wall that is the hostility between us. St. Paul, first of all, says, you know the reason why you're members of the church? You're members of the church because, unlike me, as a Jewish person who is revulsed by the things that I see and might be thinking you have no business in the church, God, although he was offended by Gentile practice, did not stop himself from loving the Gentiles and welcoming them into his church. And he did that, as he reminds us, at the cost of his own blood. Think about how Jesus' ministry was lived out. Jesus was not in a ministry of excluding and hating people because they were sinners. Instead, it was a ministry in which sinners repeatedly came to him because he offered them forgiveness. But what happened as a result? Jesus comes to those who reject God's way and they kill him. But that does not stop him from going to meet them. To love them at the cost of his own blood is in fact what has allowed the Gentiles to come into the church. St. Paul reminds them that the love of God was so deep that though you were living in ways that were far away from what God wanted you to live, he brought you into the church even at the cost of his own blood. How important it is that we look at this and realize that St. Paul is saying at the very center of why you were in the church and why you can mix with the Jewish people, the center of the church is Christ's ministry of loving people who may not seem worthy of love. What's also interesting about this is St. Paul saying not only is it interesting that reconciliation is happening on a vertical level, how God comes and reconciles a group that the Jewish people must have thought God hated, that God reconciles with them, how amazing it is that Jewish people and Gentile people are reconciled to each other. Not only is there a horizontal or a vertical dimension to Christ's reconciling work, there is a horizontal one that breaks down a dividing line. I mentioned how Paul uses that word, the uncircumcised, because that would have been an often way in which Jews spoke about Gentiles. And of course, Gentiles, particularly Greeks, would have spoken about Jews as barbarians with their barbarian backward ways. There is a great history, not simply because of people looking at Gentile ways and finding them objectionable, but in fact, the Jewish people at Jesus' day had a deep suspicion of Gentiles, particularly Greeks, because of the ways in which their history they had found themselves consistently at odds. Many of you will know that uh, Jewish people today celebrate Hanukkah around Christmas time. Do you know where that festival comes from? It comes from the time of the Jews' victory over a Greek king who tried to impose paganism on them. A Greek king called Antiochus Epiphanes uh, set up, after conquering Israel, set up an idol, an idol of Zeus, in the middle of the Jewish temple in Jerusalem and ordered them to worship it and also deliberately to offend the Jews, started sacrificing pigs on the altar of the Temple of Jerusalem. Forbid them to circumcise their children, forbid them to teach them the ways of the Jews. Hanukkah celebrates how an uprising, uh, sometimes known by the Maccabees, or a group of people, a family who started an uprising against the Greeks, how they were victorious over the Greeks and preserved Jewish ways and cleansed the temple. When you have that kind of history with Greek people, you can understand, I don't know if I really want to be around these kind of people. In many ways, it would have been almost as if Jewish leaders making peace with Nazis. But of course, we look too at the Gospels and realize how often it was the Gentiles who were of goodwill 
would have found Jewish people very difficult to get along with. Think about how Jesus speaks often to the Pharisees, who may have had ideals that they put forward, but in fact did not live out those ideals very well. Jesus upbraids the Pharisees. Jewish leaders were saying, well, you speak very well and condemning adulterers and people in the pagan world who commit adultery, but don't you lust after all the women in your life in your own heart? Don't you use your power to corrupt others? And don't you condemn sinners and try and, instead of trying to bring them closer and to change their hearts? How easy it was for both groups to be suspicious of one another, and what do we find mostly symbolized, or the greatest symbol of this, is the way that the temple operated. We know the historian Josephus tells us that in between the temple, there was a, or in the middle of the temple, there was a wall. In the outer rim of the temple, Gentiles could come into the court of the Gentiles, but there was a wall, and they could not go beyond them unless they were Jewish. And Josephus tells us that there was a sign there saying, anyone who is not a Jew who enters through here will be responsible for their own death. The penalty of death, the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile, was a physical wall in the temple, the place where God's presence dwell most mightily. Gentiles were not permitted to come. And how amazing it is, St. Paul says, that through the power of Christ, the revulsion that existed mutually between these two groups was put aside. How interesting it is that when Paul speaks about the unity of the church, he talks not simply that we should join hands and say kumbaya and our differences aren't large. Instead, he says our differences are massive. But look at the great power of Christ that he can take two very different groups and bring them together into one. New Jews and new Gentiles worshiping in the same place, eating the same food, sharing the same body and blood of Christ, and hearing the same word. You who are so broken and irreconcilable, now calling each other brothers and sisters in Christ. The foundation of the church is the reconciling work that Christ does between us and God, and the reconciling work that Christ does between us and other people. Now, I mentioned that the foundation of the church, we're told, the cornerstone holding all things together is Christ's work, and us following the church, following the way of the apostles, is in fact the second point I wanted to make. The second point is that this reconciling work of Christ, this way in which Christ brings people to God and brings people to each other, is one of the greatest witnesses the church can have to a world that is broken down and in so many ways seems irreconcilable. Listen to how St. Paul talks about the church when he speaks about it and what Christ has done. He says, Then you who are no longer strangers and aliens, but you who are citizens with the saints, and also members of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are built together spiritually into a dwelling place for God. St. Paul is making an allusion or this comparison between the physical temple and you as physical bodies gathered together in the church, not in a physical building, that spread throughout the world as congregations of Jew and Gentile joined together. Compare the dividing wall and the temple where God's presence was visibly and most remarkably present. Look at you, because you are now the place where God's presence is most hardly felt. We, you and me, as modern Christians throughout the world, are now the temple where God dwells and is intended to show the world what God's presence looks like. And God's presence looks like a reconciled presence. That's so very important, I think, for us, because many of the times when we look around at this world, it is not hard for us to look at how completely divided the world seems today. 
Look no further than south of our border to think about what divisions really exist. Every time I look at the news, every time I look at social media, I think all is lost. <coughs> I mean, don't you? It seems impossible to see humanity in another person, let alone to acknowledge another person might be right. The way we speak to each other with unbelievable contempt. It's incredible today. And it's shocking. But of course, we see this even in everyday life. How easy is it for us to dismiss other people or uh, to find ourselves contemptuous of people who are different than us? You know, so many times we find in this world, sadly, the great problem is not that people have stopped believing in God. In fact, uh, polls tell us that people still do. That people have given up on each other. In fact, one of the things that I think is the most difficult thing about the church growing is not convincing people that there is a God out there. It's convincing people that it's worth sitting in the pew next to somebody who may I object to. How difficult it is for me to bind myself to another person and say, why should I spend time with you when you may offend me? You may make things difficult for me. You may criticize me. You may find ways in which you hurt me. Why should I even bother? A person like that is not somebody I want in my life, so why should I be part of the church? For myself, one of the greatest challenges I've found lately in the church is becoming more and more aware of, of course, the legacy of the church and its history with indigenous people. Of course, this is uh, more obvious to us often in June where we celebrate Indigenous Peoples Day around the summer solstice, June 21st. One of the things I found particularly difficult is me going to times where or the diocese or other groups puts on seminars or uh, puts on information days that tells us about some of the history with First Nations peoples. And frankly, it's shocking. I remember Irene, one of the members of our own congregation, when I went to a, a day that was put on by the diocese a couple of months ago, telling us about how uh, when she went to a reunion about a residential school she went to, I was meeting some of the friends she went to it with. She was shocked to realize that many of them were telling them her stories that she didn't even know was going on. Stories of how clergy she looked up to and respected and the church had actually abused her friends with impunity. Or you look at ways in which people uh, were forbidden from using their native languages. You look at all of those sorts of things and you look at this and I can understand the anger that many First Nations people, uh, Métis and Inuit people have towards the church today. One of the things that makes it so difficult to go to these places or to have open discussions is that I look at this and I understand the anger that an entire people can have against the church as an institution and how offended I can be because I can say as a person I didn't do anything. I didn't support residential schools. The last one closed before I was even aware that residential schools existed. And I mean, I'm sure I've got prejudices like everybody else, but I don't ever remember using a racial slur against an indigenous person. I look at that and say, it's not fair for you to say these sorts of things to me. How easy is it for us to be two groups like Jews and Gentiles who circle at each other and say, look, I've got lots of history with you and your people, and I don't want to associate with your kind. Do you know some of the most powerful stories I've ever heard of the church and of Christ's work is the stories I hear when we gather here on First Nations Sunday. And we hear the stories of First Nations people who are very honest about the ways the church failed them. And how it is that though the church failed them, Christ has not, and they refuse to let go of the church because they refuse to let go of Christ. And Christ dwells in the church even though the church often fails her Lord. How wonderful a story it was that Clayols just two years ago came and spoke to us 
but his ancestor, who as a Methodist minister, a faithful Christian person, was sent, because he's a First Nations person, sent to a white congregation, and on the first Sunday, only one person showed up because everyone else in the congregation heard this person was First Nations, and I do not want them to leave me. They refused to accept their hatred and instead continued to serve them and love them at the cost of his own dignity. And he did this for so long that eventually this congregation filled with hatred came back and learned to love him. How much of a legacy that was in the community he served because he was willing to accept the cost of reconciliation. How great it is when we find First Nations people in our own congregation saying, I am willing to spend time in a church that failed my people because I am willing to accept that history because Christ was willing to forgive me in my own personal history too. One of the most powerful things in the world is to point to the way that Christ brings people who are so separate together by the power of his grace. But of course, why do we talk about the blood of Christ? Because reconciliation costs us something. Why do we hold a cross on the wall. Why is it so pervasive a symbol of Christian life and faith? It is a pervasive symbol because it says the reconciliation costs us something, but it's worth it. For you, you may not have contact with First Nations people on a regular basis. You may be asking yourself, well, what do I reconcile with? How easy is it for us to point and say, well, somebody else should do the business of reconciling? That's not what this gospel says. It says through the power of Christ, you are capable of reconciling even with people who do not love or respect you. How wonderful it is that St. Paul did the very same thing. He's writing to the Ephesians, and if you know from the book of Acts, when he visited Ephesus, the town threw a riot, dragged him into the center square, beat him and kicked him out of town, and yet what does St. Paul still do? He writes to the church in Ephesus expressing his love for them. People like Paul bore the marks of Christ's suffering in his own body because he was willing to do anything to show the world what the love of Christ looked like. You want our church to grow? You want people's opinion of the church to change? Then start by reconciling with the people you see in your life that you cannot easily reconcile with. Let the grace of God tamp down all of those sorts of objections you may have. And let the grace of Christ help you reconcile with the people around you. Find the neighbor who is not easy to love. Reconcile with the brother who has hurt you. Love the person who criticizes you. And bless those who do not recognize the goodness that exists within you. Our call as a church is not simply to celebrate the reconciliation won by Christ. Our call as a church is to live out the way of Christ, to proclaim to the world the reconciliation between peoples is possible because the love of Christ dwells within us. Let that be our mission today, to reconcile and love those who are not easy to love. And by doing that, let us show the world what God's love is really like.